0: Lord, we do praise you for your grace that is infinitely greater than all of our sin. If it were not the case that you are a gracious God, we would be without hope. And you could be a gracious God and not send your son, and we would still be without hope. But your grace and your love, infinite love, unprovoked by anything outside of yourself, just pure love, caused you to be merciful to us and gracious to us who deserved your wrath. And so we praise you and we give you thanks. And oh Lord, as we look at these things this morning, as we remember our history, Father, I'm once again was struck this week by the reality that the evangelical church is losing its history. We're losing the reasons we are what we claim to be today. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see and to clarify what the gospel is, where we got it from, and what to do with it now that you've revealed it to us. And fill us with your spirit, Father. Prepare us to take the Lord's Supper here at the end and give us a a refreshed love for the word of God. And these things we pray by the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I want to start this morning by asking you how many of you brought your copy of the scriptures with you this morning. If you brought a copy of a Bible, if you could just hold it up for me, I want to see it. Good, that's a lot of Bibles, right? Good, I wish I had a picture of that. Um, Now let me ask you this question. How would your relationship with God be different if you didn't have a Bible? Um, How would it be different? What if nobody in your family had a Bible either? In fact, what if you lived in a community where not only did you not have a Bible and nobody in your family had a Bible, but nobody in your family even knows anyone who's ever had a Bible? How would that affect your relationship with the Lord? And some of you, if you're being perfectly honest right now, which you should be with the Spirit, you might be thinking, well probably wouldn't affect my relationship with God too much because, truth be told, I really don't read the Bible anyway. So let me assume then that that you believe you can be spiritually healthy, you can have a spiritual vitality about your life simply by coming to church. Okay, let's, let's think about that. What if when you came to church, the only sermon that you heard was in a language you couldn't understand? And you had no Bible and didn't know of anyone who did. Would that affect your relationship with God? Um, You might say, Pastor, these sound like ridiculous questions. I mean, who in the world has ever lived in that scenario? Who Who has ever lived without a copy of the Bible and would go to church and listen to a preacher who speaks a language he doesn't understand? Well, if you lived anywhere in Europe during the Dark Ages, medieval times, everyone did. In those days, no one owned the Bible. And everyone who went to church heard sermons preached in Latin, not in their native tongue, whether it was English or German or Swedish or Russian or whatever, it was always preached in a language that only a highly educated priestly class of men could understand. And by the way, that remained true of the Roman Catholic Church. They preached all of their sermons in Latin um, right up until 1964, the year of my birth. And my birth had nothing to do with it, but my mother grew up Catholic, and she now that she knows the Lord, she tells of many, many, many times. I mean, every week and sometimes every day because Mass is served every day like the sacrifices of the Old Testament were sacrificed every day. And she would say, I never, heard, I never heard a sermon by the priest in English. It was always in Latin until 1964, Vatican II, when they gave permission for the priest to begin preaching the sermon in the language of the people, whether that was English or German or, or whatever it was. This is really hard for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, if you're like me, you don't just have one Bible; you have a stack of Bibles, and I brought mine. Uh, this is this is just a stack out of my office, past Bibles that I've used to study. I mean, there's a variety of different Bibles here. There's even a paraphrase. Here's a Jewish New Testament. Um, I've had these Bibles for years. These are just the ones out of my office. I've got more at home. My wife has her own stack, maybe not that big. I've got my father's Bible. I've got my grandfather's Bible. It looks like the Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) He loved the Lord and loved his word. And you have Bibles. You have Bibles, don't you? Um, You probably have Bibles in different translations. You probably have Bibles of different sizes and shapes, and you probably have hardback, paperback, leather-bound, imitation leather, and some of you young people might even have the infamous duct tape Bible. You might have one in black, another in red, another in brown, and even perhaps, if you dared to buy one, a Duck Dynasty Bible. Perhaps, moreover, uh, your collection includes study Bibles. What's your favorite study Bible? Is it the MacArthur Study Bible? The Geneva Study Bible, which is now the Reformation Study Bible. Is it the Ryrie Study Bible? That was my first. How about the ESV Study Bible? That's a good one. You probably have all of these and more on your electronic Bible. If you have a smartphone or a, a computer or an iPad or a Droid or anything like that, then you've got every Bible you could po- possibly get in English or whatever language that you speak. Truth be told, beloved, we are fabulously rich In Bibles. We live in a culture that swims in Bibles. The Word of God is everywhere. The Word of God is even in places where the people who speak it don't even know the Lord. It shows up in our language. And a lot of that has to do with Tyndall. But imagine living in a place. If you lived anywhere. At any time between the creation of man and 50 years before the Gutenberg Bible, mid-1400s, then you didn't have a Bible. Nobody you knew had a Bible. And if you lived anywhere in Europe between A.D. 500 at the fall of the Roman Empire and 1500, with rare exceptions, the only sermon you ever heard was in a Latin from a... a, um, a Catholic priest, no doubt, or an Orthodox priest who would speak to you in a language you did not know. It was, in their terms, a heavenly language that would have its effect without you having to understand it. And so you never would. What a world. What a world. And into that kind of world, a little baby was born in 1494 whose name was William Tyndall. Historians would remember him with such titles and accolades as the mighty mainspring of the English Reformation, or the Apostle of England, or the first of the Puritans, or the prophet of the English language. I mean, you hear things like that, and you got to ask, what in the world did William Tyndall do that was so great to earn him such accolades well, beloved, he did something so magnificent, it absolutely changed the world because it changed the course of history. You see, William Tyndall, by God's grace, created the first ever translation of the Word of God in English. And he did it in a way that made God's Word completely accessible to a vast nation of people who had never heard the word of God in their own language and certainly had never read it. The effects of the life of William Tyndall, the effects of the Tyndall New Testament that it had on the world, frankly, cannot be overestimated. But it came at great cost. For William Tyndall, it cost him his life, everything, He's so passionate about this. He never married. Of course, he was a Catholic priest, so Catholicism didn't believe their priests could be married. He died single, and he died away from his homeland. The effect that the Tyndall New Testament had on the world simply cannot be overestimated. Let me tell you about William Tyndall. Let me share with you some of his biography. We don't know a whole lot about Tyndall's early years, but we do know that at the age of 12, he entered Magdalen College. You would say 12 is an awfully early age to enter college. Well, he was a really bright guy, and most people who went to college entered college early, which was uh, Magdalene College was right there attached to Oxford University there in England, where he would spend 10 years of his life from 1506 to 1516, and there he would study for a decade. Now, children, if you're under the age of 18, I want you to just pay attention for a minute, okay? Just give me a minute, and you you can do whatever your parents tell you to do after that. But I want you to listen to this. Here's what William Tyndall studied. In his early years, the early years of his education, he studied grammar, arithmetic, that's math for you and me, geometry, astronomy, music theory, rhetoric, logic, and philosophy, So, stop complaining to your mother about how much work you have to do at home. And more importantly, I want you to hear this because I want you to understand that your education is extremely important. The reason that you need to learn to read, the reason that you need to learn to do math. You know, George Washington was a fantastic mathematician. He just did it in his head. He was, he was really, really brilliant. It was one of the reasons he became president. But his father told him, son, I'm not teaching you math so you will know math. I'm teaching you math so you will learn logic. You must learn how things connect how the world is ordered. There's something bigger going on than just learning grammar and learning your times tables and learning how to read. This is really, really important. And when you are older, when you are an adult, and you see what is required of you and the opportunities that you have opened to you because you received an education, you will thank God and your mother and father 10,000 times for giving you a good education. Take your education seriously. Listen, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. And in order for you to do that, you have to maximize everything that you have. And if you are so blessed that God has put you in a family that is committed to giving you an education and teaching you how to calculate and to speak and maybe even to play an instrument and and learn how to write and read and all of those things, praise God for that. Take your education seriously. And all the homeschool mother said. (laughs) And your pastor says amen to You need this. Now, I get it. I understand that God has used uneducated men like John Bunyan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. But even he had an excellent education for being a poor man. Yes, he was a tinker, but he was brilliant. And he praised God for his mother as well. Now, back to Tyndall. It became apparent early in William Tyndall's life that he was especially good with languages. I've met people like this. I know people like this. Language is easy for them. Eventually, Tyndall would master eight languages. Here they are, Latin, Greek, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and of course, English. Brilliant young man. Now, we need to understand that at this point of history, the entire Western world was ruled by the Roman Catholic Church. It was called the Holy Roman Empire. And It was normal for a young scholar going to a Catholic school, which he was, to become a priest early after they finished their undergraduate degree. And so that was the case with William Tyndale. He became a Catholic priest sometime in his mid to late 20s. And as a priest and a student at Oxford, he worked on his Master of Arts degree and was eventually allowed to study theology. But here's the twist. It wasn't biblical theology that he was allowed to study. And anyone who has has been through the education of the Roman Catholic Church, they are master educators. But when it comes to theology, you're going to spend a lot of time not studying the theology of the Bible, but studying the theology of the philosophers, namely Plato and Aristotle, and others. Tyndall once expressed his great disappointment about this being shielded from the Bible and true biblical theology as a young scholar. He wrote this. In the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on the scriptures until until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and arm armed with false principles and and with which he is clean shut out of an understanding of the scriptures. The scripture is locked up with false exposition and with false principles of natural philosophy. Martin Luther had the same complaint. In fact, he, when you read his biography, you learn that he studied for years and years and years and years, and there's this, There's this moment in his education when his his supervisor, his supervising priest, decided it was time for him to study the Bible. And it made him tremble. He had never even looked at one before. And yet, he he was a doctor. He was a doctor in theology, and yet he knew nothing of the Word of God. In July 1515, Tyndall graduated with a Master of Arts degree in Oxford University. And he he was a he was a very highly educated, university-trained linguist from a highly acclaimed school, Oxford. And then in 1519, he left left Oxford and began studying at another university, namely Cambridge, also in England. Now it's important as we talk about what's happening with William Tyndall in England that we also take a moment to um, glance over at Germany. In Wittenberg, uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, another Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther was just a few steps ahead of Tyndall. On October 31st, 1517, Luther had posted his 95 theses or 95 public um, questions and declarations about the spiritual abuses and unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church to which he belonged, and he did not want to separate from the Roman Catholic Church, he didn't want to cause a problem, he didn't want to make a split, but as he studied scripture, he began seeing a significant gap between what the formal theology of the church was, and what the Bible actually taught. Luther posted these 95 theses to get a discussion going. And this, historically, was the beginning of the Reformation in Germany. Martin Luther was already, he'd already discovered in Scripture, in Paul's teaching, he discovered justification by faith alone, and he was writing books about it. Another thing we need to understand is that at the same time Luther was doing this, uh, let me back up. I should say it this way. The reason he could do this is because of another Catholic priest who was also a brilliant scholar and his name was Desiderius Erasmus. He was significantly older than Luther. And this was a period of time where uh, classical antiquity uh, was all the rage. And, And what that means is um, everything that they were discovering about ancient Greek and Rome, um, they were making some profound discoveries in terms of manuscripts and scrolls and culture. And so the in thing for scholars was to learn Greek and to learn Latin, which was the language of Rome, and, and, uh, and Hebrew, the Hebrew language, which very few of them knew, almost none and Erasmus was one of the early scholars who really mastered Greek. But there was no fully compiled Greek New Testament. And so he gave years to the study of the manuscripts that were available and actually produced a Greek New Testament. And that became the basis for everything. Now we have the New Testament in the original language of Greek. And Luther got a hold of that and started studying the New Testament in Greek. And that's where he began to learn. That's where he began to read Paul for himself and wrestle with how does a person get this righteousness that he desperately needs and can't earn and doesn't have. And he found in the Apostle Paul that righteousness comes by faith alone It was because of Erasmus who produced this Greek New Testament that Luther was able to do his work. Historians say, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. By the time Tyndall over in England began studying at Cambridge, Luther's books were being published all over the place and read all over Europe. And, And Cambridge, where he was studying now, had become kind of a hotbed for Protestantism. Everyone was being affected by the teaching of Martin Luther. Protestant theology or reformed theology was new and fresh, and it was being hammered and and debated over and adopted. And a number of young scholars at Cambridge used to meet at a pub, which Martin Luther used to do as well over in Germany. But in Cambridge, there was a pub outside King's College nearby called the White Horse Inn. And these young, young scholars would go to the White Horse Inn and they would debate Luther's theology, Reformed theology. And many believe that Tyndall was one of these groups, uh, one of these men in this group. And he was joined by notable heroes like Ridley and Latimer and Coverdale and Cranmer and Bilney and others, some of whom would eventually be martyred for their unquestionable faith in the plain teaching of Scripture which had been hidden in the darkness for so many centuries, and many of them burned at the stake. Eventually, Tyndall left Cambridge because he wanted to spend all his time studying the Greek New Testament, which was being revised as they found new and older manuscripts. They were able to fill in the gaps and make the translation better, and he wanted to spend all of his time studying the Greek New Testament so he would know the true word of God for his church. And so he left Cambridge, and he found a job as a tutor for a wealthy family, tutoring the children, and eventually was able to preach at the local church. And there he stayed for a while. As he grew in his understanding of the word, he began to realize that the people of England would never come to a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through Latin sermons being preached through Latin Bibles. Remember, he was studying the Greek. He was seeing things that could not be seen in the Latin, at least in the translations they had. And so Tyndall left Cambridge, and he began studying. John Fox, the man who back in the day wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs wrote this. Tyndall realized that the cause for people's spiritual blindness in England and the reason for the errors and superstitions of the church was ignorance of Scripture. They knew what the priests taught, they knew the doctrine of the church, but they didn't know the Bible. He goes on, he says, The truth was entombed in a dead language. Namely, Latin. Dead because nobody spoke it anymore. And the only people who could read and write it were very few of the priestly order who were educated. Tyndall wrote, It was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scriptures were laid before their eyes in the mother tongue. On one famous occasion, Tyndall got into a heated debate with a Catholic priest over dinner with an, uh, 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 on the issue of what the Bible actually taught. And this priest said these words, we would be better off without God's law than the Pope's. To which Tyndall famously responded, I defy the Pope. And all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know the scriptures better than you. And from that moment on, Tyndall was ruled by one holy passion to publish the word of God in the language of the people. And for him, that was English. No doubt he was encouraged by the endeavor of Martin Luther, who also translated the New Testament Greek into the language of his people, namely German, and it transformed that whole country. It was early on then in Germany, but it would transform that country. And William Tyndall caught this fire. By the time Luther and the Reformation had taken off, it became clear that Luther was amassing many, many enemies. They wanted to kill him. And if they couldn't kill Luther, if the German authorities couldn't kill Luther, they would find someone to kill. And they killed a lot of people. But Tyndall was soon to learn that those enemies were quickly becoming his. At the age of 30, he left England for the European continent, to begin his work in the translation because he was going to have to do it without the consent of the king of England, King Henry VIII. This was a clear breach of English law to translate the word of God into English. Everyone spoke English, but it was against the law to have the scriptures in English. And so every text William Tyndall translated he did illegally. From this time forward, Tyndall would live as a fugitive and an outlaw, always moving, always running, always hiding. And though he would accomplish much for the glory of God, he would never again return to his homeland. He would die. Eventually, he made his way to Wittenberg, Germany, where he sat under the teaching of Martin Luther and worked on his translation. And later, as his work progressed, he moved to Cologne, Germany, where he finally was able to find a printer who was willing to take the risk to publish this unpublishable book. And so he worked out the deal with the printer. But someone who was um, an opponent of the Reformation got wind of what was happening between him and this printer, and Tyndall had to be on the run again. He made his way downriver to Worms. you remember, it's W-O-R-M-S, looks like Worms. Worms is where Martin Luther took his stand, or they laid out his books in front of him, all of his, all of his stuff, his uh, bondage of the will and his captivity in Babylon, and, and all the, the books and articles and everything, these 95 theses, and they laid it out before he thought he was going to a debate, and they had all his books laid out, the emperor, uh, the Roman Catholic prelate, the whole council was there and They said, are these your books? And he said, yes. And they said, do you recant? That is, do you repudiate everything you've said in all of these books? And he would not make a butchery of his conscience. And you know, the end of that story was he stood there and he said, here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. And he would not recant. And they put a price on his head at that moment. They were looking to kill him. And it all happened right there in Worms. However, eventually, by this time that Tyndall got to Worms, by this time the city had firmly gotten behind the Reformation, and Tyndall was free to translate. And he found a printer there in Worms, and he made an agreement with him to publish his New Testament as soon as it was finished. And sure enough, he finished the translation from the Greek into English And the printer let it fly. First printing was 3,000 copies. Several months ago, when um, Truth Remains was here, and they brought all those Bibles and all of that explanation of the history of the English Bible, I knew I was going to be preaching that Sunday morning. And I asked them, since I'm preaching on the Word of God this morning, could I have one of your ancient Bibles, one of your old, old, hundreds and hundreds of years old Bibles, you know, maybe the Coverdale Bible, or maybe the King James, or something that I can hold up to show uh, everybody what one of these Bibles that men died for was about. And, um, and she said to me, she said, no, we're not going to give you any of those Bibles. We're going to give you the jewel of the Bible. And it was Tyndall's New Testament. It was about that wide, about that tall. In fact, uh, in your bulletin is a a color copy of the first page of the Gospel of John printed right there. And actually, the Tyndall Bible was was just a little bit bigger than that. So pretty small, but about two and a half, three inches thick. And it was just the New Testament. Paper was thick. 3,000 copies. Tyndall was able to make connections with Christian cloth merchants in England who were friendly to the Reformation, And so hiding his small New Testaments in bolts of cotton cloth, he would ship them to England. These merchants would be there on the wharf collecting their merchandise to sell. They would take it to the authorities. The authorities would look it over and check it off. It would clear customs. They would take it back to their shops, and they would dig through it until they found these Bibles, and they would disperse them kind of as an underground effort to get the word of God out. And they could hardly print them fast enough. Steve Lawson notes, they were sold to eager Englishmen, merchants, students, tailors, weavers, bricklayers, and peasants alike, all hungry to read and grow in their knowledge of God's word. Each New Testament cost three shillings and two pence, which was a weekly wage for the average worker. Now let's pause for a second. How much do you earn in a week? You who have jobs. How much do you earn in a week? Would you pay all of that for a Bible? You might pay half of that for the new iPhone because it's super cool or some new technology that comes out. Did you pay a whole week's wages for a Bible? And let's see Steve Lawson says, Each New Testament costs three shillings, two pence a week's wages for a skilled laborer, which was remarkably accessible as a price for the average person. They didn't care, <laughs> they'd never seen the Bible before. They wanted to know God's Word. They'd heard, but they'd never seen and never read. By summer of 1526, church officials in England had discovered the underground circulation of Tyndall's Bibles, and they were furious. They began confiscating every new test, every Tyndall Bible they could find, and church officials immediately declared the purchase, sale, distribution, or possession of this Bible as a serious crime resulting in serious punishment. Imagine this, beloved. In Tyndall's day, not only Not only would you not have a copy of the scriptures for yourself or your family, but if somehow you ever did manage to get a copy of the scriptures, you would become a felon and an outlaw. And if you dared to read it to your children, you could be burned. And you didn't even have to have a copy of it. If you had had just a piece of it, or if someone had recited it to you and you wrote it down and taught it to your children you could be burned. This was no idle threat, these new laws. They meant that you could be burned alive by Roman Catholic officials for simply reading the Bible in English. Beloved, let that sink in. The dramatist John Bale, 1495 through 1563, he once wrote this. As a boy of 11, I watched the burning of a young man in Norwich, for possessing the Lord's Prayer in English. John Fox of Fox's Book of Martyrs records seven Lollards. Lollards were followers of John Huss, who was before Tyndall, who actually started kind of working on an English Bible. I saw seven Lollards bo- burned at Coventry in 1519 for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. They didn't even have a Bible. And you got to ask, why was the Roman Catholic Church so extraordinarily hostile to the idea of a translation of the Bible in English? John Piper is helpful and rightly explains that it was because the church realized that they would not be able to sustain certain doctrines biblically because the people would see that they are not in the Bible. And the church realized that their power and control over the people and even over the state would be lost, as it was in Germany, if certain doctrines were exposed as unbiblical, especially the priesthood, purgatory, and penance. And if you're a Roman Catholic listening to my voice right now, I'm not bashing the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not. I'm just trying to give you history here. But what I want to ask you is, would you, would you take the time to read the Bible and search and see if these things are true? I am not the authority. The Word of God is the authority. Would you search it out and see, is the priesthood and purgatory and penance in the Bible? This was the issue. Who is going to be in charge? Will it be a fallible man or the infallible word of God? In any case, Tyndall now became a hunted man. King Henry VIII sent his hounds after him in Germany, knowing that the emperor in Germany would be, um, would be disposed to do what the king of England wanted to. After all, he too was against having the word of God translated into the German language. In 1531, he spoke of his sufferings. In kind of a disjointed way, he simply writes, my pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country, and bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere compassed and innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I endure. I was reading that this week, and it reminded me of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul, in the same kind of environment, hostile religious environment, he wrote these words. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and this was the calling and it was always the calling even for the old testament prophets whom the religious people of the day the leaders of the day killed and then venerated after they were dead even Jesus himself killed and then venerated after he was dead. And so it was with other men who tried to bring the Word of God to bear in a hostile religious culture. Eventually, while Tyndall was working on his translation of the Old Testament, it's an amazing story. He's struggling now with the Old, just portions of the Old Testament he's trying to get translated into English because the New Testament uh, was on its way. It's already being sold and printed and pirated. Uh, other people were picking up copies and making their own copies, and one time he was uh, aboard ship and he was—he had all of his manuscripts, all of his books—and and the ship sank and he lost it all. He had to start all over again with the Old Testament. It nearly broke his heart. Um. In any case, while he was working on the revision or the new, his new attempt to translate the Old Testament, he was befriended by a young scholarly man by the name of Henry Phillips. He was articulate, he was friendly, he was gregarious, he knew the languages, he was a Renaissance man. It's kind of the beginning of the Renaissance period. And and Tyndall loved him. And for a period of weeks and months, Phillips gained Tyndall's trust, and then, like Judas, he betrayed him. And Tyndall didn't know it, but he was one of the hounds sent to discover him. Tyndall was arrested. He was taken to Filford Castle, 18 miles from Antwerp, Germany, where he remained for 18 months. We don't know much of what happened to him during that period, but there was one letter that had survived, which he wrote from his cell. And it gives a picture of what he endured. He writes, it's translated out of Latin, I beg your lordships, And that of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you would request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by perpetual drainage, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for which I have... A very thin, for, for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings thicker of thicker cloth to pull over and above. He has also a warmer nightcap. And, and I asked to be allowed to have a lamp. Now listen to this. He didn't have any light. When the sun went down, that was it. I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent while the commissary, uh, with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible and Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in my study. He was going to continue his translation. But if any other decision has been made concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tyndall. It's said that Tyndall was such a godly, humble man that even in jail, he led his jailer to Christ and then led the jailer's daughter to Christ. And there were others in the prison who also came to the saving knowledge of Christ. At the end of 18 months of imprisonment, William Tyndale was condemned by a decree from Augsburg, again in Germany, by the emperor, same emperor who was, had hoped to condemn and kill Luther. On October 6, 1536, he was taken to public execution where he was tied to a stake, strangled to death, and then burned. John Fox tells us, just before he died, William Tyndall cried out with a loud voice, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Which he did. And we'll learn about that next week. William Tyndall died that day, but by God's grace, he lit a fire in England that will never be put out. The reformers had a motto that they often repeated. It was in Latin, post tinebras Lux." After darkness, light. After centuries wherein the gospel was hidden by the darkness of false teaching, it suddenly exploded into the world with awesome and unsuppressible power. But let there be no mistake. The power that changed the world was not primarily the power of the preachers. The power that changed the world was the mighty word of God in the language of the people. Luther, Tyndall, Calvin, Watson, Bunyan, Owen, and others, they were merely explainers and deliverers of the word of God. As the author of Hebrews says, it is the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge between the intentions and the thoughts of the heart. Beloved, do you understand the significance of all of this? The translation of the English Bible changed the course of history. In conjunction with the translation of the Greek New Testament into German, changed the course of history. And then from there it just spread. The word of God was translated into the language of the people. No longer would a false church empire control the people with fear and false doctrine. And when the common people got to read the word of God for themselves, entire nations were transformed. It started with the transformation of individuals. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, taught by the apostles, suddenly brought salvation. In Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, on the merits of Christ, righteousness alone, individuals became children of God. The blinders came off. And they put all of their hope, they found out that their only hope, and their every hope was in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Not by works of righteousness, but by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and as individuals came to know the Savior, families were transformed. Now people can learn for themselves how God wanted husbands to relate to wives, and how uh, wives were to respect their husbands. And when they started looking into the word of God on these issues, they discovered that, that children were to, to treat their, I mean, parents were to treat their children differently. They were to nurture them and love them, as, as they were calling them to respect their parents in the Lord, for this is right. They were also called to not exasperate your children but train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Families were transformed, and then churches were transformed. When the word of God got into the church, everything changed. Now the purpose of the church was not to keep people in bondage to man-made religious systems and teachings, but to boldly proclaim and explain the whole counsel of God as revealed in Scripture. Local congregations became spiritual families who believed. It would be the hub of spiritual instruction and mutual love and affection. It is where truth was taught and applied, where needs were met, relationships were built, counsel was given, and lives were changed more and more into the image of Christ. And all of this came about by the teaching and preaching and reading of the word of God. Whole communities were then transformed and then nations. First Germany, then England, And then one by one through Europe, they began changing their legal codes and forming laws based upon the scriptures. In fact, if it were not for the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, the Ten Commandments and other teachings, our nation would have never become the influence for purity, morality, and prosperity that it has become and which we are losing. De Tocqueville was right back in the 1700s when he says, America is great because America is good. And if America should ever stop being good, it will stop being great. You know where the goodness came from? It came from the founding fathers building their laws and their ideals on the Bible. I'm not saying we were a Christian nation. There was a a lot among the early uh, fathers of our country that was just weird theology but they knew the word of god was true oh my friend once it was unleashed the light of scripture changed the world but here's the really amazing thing if the light of god's word changed the world think of this the light that changed the world is sitting in your lap right now it's in that little pew holder in front of you it is not the teaching of any man It is the truth of God given in a book that you can read. And so that's the question, isn't it? What about your Bible? Is it on your smartphone? It's probably scattered all through your house. Do you love it? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you long to hear it preached and explained? Are you teaching it to your children? Are you reading it? Let me exhort you this morning with the Words of the Apostle Peter, who said, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word of God, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 1 Peter 2. Beloved, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you can have one today. I haven't told you about these. You can't have those. But they're some really, really old pages from old Bibles. We've got the London Polyglot on the far one. Polyglot meaning many languages. It's out of the book of Ezra, Old Testament, translated into multiple languages. In the center, we have a page from the Geneva Bible with the study notes. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. And then here, the closest one to me is a page from an actual 1611 King James Bible. And you know what? You don't have to get an old Bible. You can get a new Bible. And it doesn't have to look like any of my old, dirty Bibles. Right there next to that is a stack of brand-new, fresh Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, come get one. It it doesn't cost you anything. Take it. Read it. I know every time I, I speak on things like this, people get upset. Because I'm down on Catholics. Look, I'm not down on Catholics. I'm not down on anyone. All I'm saying is, let the authority of your life be the word of God. Test everything, including what I have said this morning, based on the word of God. Don't let some other fallible man teach you what you should believe. Over the next several weeks, I want to preach a number of messages on why you should know and love the Word of God and why it is so precious to this church. I think it will also give you insight into why we do so many things that we do. Why do we call ourselves a Bible church? Why do, we, why do I preach like I do? I mean, I preach expository. I do exposition one verse at a time. Normally, today is, today is um, an exception. But suffice it to say for now that we call ourselves a Bible church primarily because it is the scriptures that has transformed us and made us who we are. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to kind of take a break in the Gospel of John and we're going to look at the glory of the scriptures. Because, beloved, nothing has the power to transform the world like the word of God and the language of the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so gracious to us that you would give us your word in a form that we could read so that we could be ruled by you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would use your word to draw people even this morning to yourself and be glorified in their transformation and in mine and in all of us as we recommit ourselves and surrender ourselves to this book and to Jesus Christ by his Spirit. And for your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.